Let's open our Bibles to Revelation 17. We'll give you a sprinkling of 17 and 18. Uh, then we'll get into it. Taylor? Today's scripture reading is selected verses from Revelation 17 and 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And written on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and the ten horns. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is a great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her wrath and her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw their dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. This is God's word. So as Christians, we have this crazy insider lingo language that we use, right? And, and everything has it, right? Like football, basketball, the arts. Everybody has lingo for, for, for their sub kind of category, and we have it as Christians. So you'll hear a Christian say, or you have probably said, in relation to material things at one time or another, it's all going to burn. Anybody ever say that? You know, it's all going to burn, right? Now, it comes right out of Revelation. No one probably knew that, but it's this literal Babylon, this city in the end times, where in one hour, God's going to bring judgment on it, like he did in Egypt, and it's all going to be gone in one hour. Now, time of true confession. I know every time I've ever said that, it was with a little bit of jealousy, right? So I remember having four kids and the house is falling apart and I'm driving a junk car and uh, I'm trying to tithe, I'm trying to serve God and I look out the window and my neighbor who doesn't even go to church, he gardens on Sunday, has a brand new car and he's waxing it and you know he's going on European vacations and everything's going well. And then I look out the window and I say, doesn't he know it's all gonna burn? And really what I'm saying is God, you know, I can use a little of what he has, right? 
And by the way, don't act like I'm the only one. David said his foot almost slipped when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, right? But hopefully in our hearts, we do realize that. We do realize it is all going to burn. Our, our world is, is on a rocket-propelled journey of progress. I don't know if you know that. We're living through the greatest progress mankind has ever seen. Uh, I went to my financial advisor recently, and they pull up this big screen, and, and they have your age there. Uh, you're going to live to 91. And I said, well, I haven't seen a 91-year-old 6'7 guy in a long, long time. Are you sure? Uh, my daughter's supposed to live to 105, right? So we're living longer, we're prospering, and, and we're living through the greatest epic of time in human history. And yet we look here in the book of Revelation and we see, verses 9 and 10, 18 and 19, that one day this is all going to burn. Now here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to put this in context. Because I believe the book of Revelation is future. I believe everything we're reading is going to happen one day. But there's something else God has for us today. There's something greater I want to get into. Before I get there, let me give you the context. Where we are in Revelation is we're sandwiched between two events, right? Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. This is a timeout. This is an interlude where for some reason John records the judgment of Babylon. There's, there's something important about that. Babylon's very significant in the Bible, mentioned 400 times. The only other city mentioned more is Jerusalem, 800 times the city of God. Every 10 verses in Revelation is about Babylon. There's two chapters about Babylon. There's something we need to know about Babylon. But again, sandwiched between these two great events. Next week we'll see the second coming of Jesus Christ. The single greatest event the world will ever see. Uh, if you want to think of the Bible, think about it this way. It's a tale of two comings. It's a tale of a Messiah coming to Israel to save the sins of the world. It's the Christmas story, right? It's the tale of Jesus Christ coming in total obscurity to die on a cross. The cross becoming the symbol for the last 2,000 years of you know, salvation and mercy and peace. This brutal instrument of Roman power has now become a symbol of salvation. It's a wonderful story. But the second coming, Jesus comes in a different way. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. I don't care how you interpret in Revelation. Maybe you allegorize it. Maybe you see it as metaphor. Some people say it's history. And I believe it's literal, to be fulfilled. Whatever way you look at it, you have to believe Jesus is coming. In fact, that should be the cry of your heart. And I'll explain why by the end of this message. In John 15, Jesus said, Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. That... Um, where I am, you may dwell. And if I go to prepare that place, now he said this before his death, I will come again and receive you. That was a promise, I will come again. Some people say, oh yeah, he's coming again, but he's coming through the church, right? It's not a literal coming, like the world's gonna get better through the church. I don't think so. Because in the book of Acts, the last time they saw Jesus, he bodily ascended into heaven. And the angel said, why are you gazing into the heavens? Don't you know this Jesus? who in like manner went into heaven, will one day come again? In other words, bodily and physically? Uh, let me read you Jesus' own words so there's no confusion. It couldn't be any clearer. In Matthew 24, he said, I've told you all things beforehand. Therefore, if somebody says to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Or 
he came to Brooklyn under some rabbi. I don't believe that either. It's not in the Bible if you don't have a Bible. Here's why. The words of Jesus. For as the lightning comes from east and flashes to the west, that's how the coming of the Son of Man will be. In other words, there's no mystery. There's no surprise. Everybody's going to see it. I don't know how they're going to see it, but they will. After the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Couldn't be any clearer. He will come on clouds of heaven with great glory. Read Revelation 19. He's coming on a white horse, the armies of heaven. Look, this is the greatest event in human and world history. And I want you to think about its importance in this way. What did the first coming of Christ produce? A lot, a lot. The first coming of Christ produced what I would like to call the end of religion. The end of religion, the end of temples and altars and and all these things that clog our path to God. Christ's coming finally gave the spirit of God within us. The, the, The fit habitation of the dwelling of God is now in you and me or all who would come to Christ. Filled with the spirit, lives transformed. I can make the argument, it would take me a month of Sundays, that where we sit here in the West is the product of Jesus coming the first time. Ben Shapiro has a new book out called The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. He said, this book's about two mysteries. The first is, why are things so good? The second, why are we blowing it? Human beings spent tens of thousands of years living in dire poverty under subsistent conditions in constant threat of physical danger both from nature and other human beings. For nearly all human history, life has been nasty, brutish, and short. In 1900, some 10% of all infants died before reaching their first birthday in the United States. In other countries, the number was far higher. Approximately one in every 100 mothers could expect to die in childbirth. The average expectancy of life for a man In the U.S. in 1900, it was 45 years old. In Paris in 1850, it was 36 years old. Yet we now live in an era where mothers can expect to survive pregnancy and childbirth, infant mortality about 99%. Babies can be expected to survive infancy and live another eight decades. We live in an era where the vast majority of the American population lives in climate-controlled spaces. We have food, water, cars, television. He goes on to talk about tech. And then there's our freedom. We can expect that a baby born in the United States, not always the case, will never be enslaved, murdered, or tortured. As an adult, they can go about their daily business with expectation they will not be arrested for espousing an unpopular or religious view. We can live with whom we choose, marry who we choose, have as many children as we want, start businesses. We can expect to die richer than we were born. And here's the key phrase. We don't live in a perfect world but we do live in the best world that's ever existed. This is the best the world's ever seen. And listen, I know there's the haves and the have-nots. But if the first coming produced this, what's the second coming going to produce? I don't need your answer, I know. It's my favorite study in Revelation. When I teach you about the millennial reign of Christ, we're going to go through the prophets. We're going to look at Revelation. There's a golden age coming. There's a thousand years where not the 1% are going to make out but the 100%, every man under his vine and fig tree, everyone knowing the joy of the Lord, the, the, the ways of the Lord covering the earth like the, like the seas cover this land. It's going to be a golden age. And that's why we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. 
the time of equity and fairness for all. But before Jesus comes, there's this interlude. There's this judgment of Babylon. Why? Well, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that when God judged Egypt, he dismantled an empire. And that's what we're seeing in Revelation here. God is dismantling society brick by brick until Jesus returns. And the final brick is Babylon. Again, mentioned 400 times in Scripture. Revelation 17 is the judgment of spiritual Babylon. Revelation 18 is the judgment of political economic Babylon. Now, one final piece before I get into really what I want to talk about. What is the identity of this woman and what we're seeing here in chapter 17? Lots of speculation. I'll go through it real quick. I'll give you enough information to harm yourself, all right? You can read your own stuff, go on the internet, drive yourself crazy, get a commentary, whatever you want to do. Uh, Protestants hold this view, it's a dominant view, that we're looking at Rome here, more specifically, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, verse 9 says, here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains where the woman sits. Everybody says the only place that really fits that is Rome. We see a rebuilt Roman Empire, so naturally this religious system has to be Rome. They point to the Vatican or the Roman Catholic Church, which, by the way, the Vatican is a separate country than Italy. I think most people know that, right? They have their own coins, their own army. The Pope is a political figure. That's why he gets diplomacy when he comes to the United States. So people look at that and they say, oh my gosh, Mystery Babylon, there's a lot of extra biblical things in the Catholic Church. This has to be the one world system. There's a Catholic Church on every corner. So that's one view. Uh, there's another view. This is apostate Christianity. Think about it. The rapture comes. All true believers are gone. But there's still, there's still churches around. Uh, there's the World Council of Churches, which are moving away from the Bible. Rico Tice, here from London last week, talked about in his own denomination, they're moving away from Scripture. So maybe this is an apostate uh, Christianity. Some say it's the U.S., it's New York, it's Wall Street. Uh, it's a code name for some form of power or corruption or greed. And there are some, actually, who say this is Jerusalem in play here, uh, mostly preterists who think the book of Revelation was all fulfilled in 70 AD. I've been looking at this for 35 years. Every time I go into it, I want to change my view. I really do. I look at all four views. I look at every side. I always come back to the same thing. The first thing I do is say, okay, what do I really know? Let's get out of speculation. And here's what I really know. This is a literal city. Look at verse 18. The woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. I don't know any other way to look at it. Number two, it's a city of worldwide influence, worldwide. Again, John has no concept of the known world except for Rome at this time. Capital of the Antichrist. Number three, Babylon and the beast, the Antichrist, are very closely connected. Religion and politics always have tried to mix. Number four, it's the center of false religion. Number five, is the center of world commerce. Number six, Babylon persecutes the Lord's people. Number seven, it will be destroyed completely. There are verses in Isaiah that say never to be inhabited again. Babylon is inhabited today. Uh, at least the Babylon I'm going to talk about, there's a U.S. embassy there with thousands of employees. So what is this? Well, I think it's Iraq, the city north of Iraq. I think it's literal Babylon. And I know it's hard to believe, but that's what I think. Some people say, no, it's code for Rome. Here's what I have trouble with with code names. Oh, when John wrote, he put a code name so nobody would know. 
Come on, those people weren't that dumb. They, they knew Babylon was Rome if they read it. Okay, that, I, I don't see that at all. The other problem is anytime there's a code name in Scripture, we're told. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 18, when the two witnesses are killed in Jerusalem and their bodies are in the streets, it said they lie in the streets of that city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. It's Jerusalem, right? And in case you don't know, the next verse says where our Lord was crucified. So John, spiritualizing Jerusalem, gave us a code, but he told us. Now, why doesn't he tell us here? 400 times Babylon's mentioned, it's always the literal city. Charles Dyer, who wrote Babylon Rising, and I agree, said throughout history, Babylon has represented the height of rebellion and opposition to God's plans and purposes. God allows Babylon to continue during the final days. It's almost as if he calls her out for a final duel. But this time, the conflict between God and Babylon ends decisively, and Babylon will be destroyed. There is a future economic, political, and religious system that will align in the last days. You won't be here, neither will I. I've given you enough to harm yourself. So go at it. Try and figure this out. Read all this imagery. Let's get to something deeper here. The beauty of this chapter is this is the end of religion. Do you all know God hates religion? I abhor religion. I get like the heebie-jeebies when I see religion. Some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Bob, aren't you religious? Like you're a pastor, isn't this a religious enterprise? The word religion, the Latin means relingari, it means to relink. Uh, you ever see the picture of the Sistine Chapel where God's reaching to Adam? See, God's the initiator there, always has been. Religion is man trying to find his way back to God. And in many ways, trying to find his way back to God without God, if that makes any sense. The root of religion means to bind. And, and I get that. There's, there's like these binding laws or rules. But remember what Jesus said of the Pharisees? They bind people with heavy burdens they can't handle. Even they can't keep. That's the way I felt in religion. That's why I chucked religion. It was binding. It, it, it was something I didn't want to do. That's why God abhors it. You may have heard this before. God's not in the religion. He's in the what? Relationship. How do I know? Because in Genesis, God creates the world. When God creates the world, he's outside of time. He bracketed man in time. So we have Genesis in the beginning, right? Took us to Einstein to say, okay, we agree with that. And then there's revelation. There's an end. We're bracketed in time. You just can't escape it. But the beauty is the God who's outside of time steps into time. And it's a shame we argue about the six days of creation or the epics of times or the 24-hour days because we miss the beauty of our God who longs to step in day by day creating more complexity and, and more systems of amazement so that for thousands of years man could figure it out. And, and he's fine-tuning the universe and he's involved with every flower and every human and every, every sea creature, everything's named. And the beauty of God, he steps into creation. And he gives this man the ability to choose either for him and against him. And he gives him the freedom of everything in the garden. And even when man chooses to sin against God, to know good and evil apart from God, outside of God's boundaries, God steps in again. Man makes fig leaves, right? Man becomes religious. Man has to cover himself. Now, I don't know if you ever thought this through. When we get to Genesis, we'll talk more about it. Remember... Uh, in Genesis where it says Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. 
And every time we think of that, we think of like these two buff people, like your favorite celebrity, these two buff people that are naked, right? These like Adonis-like creatures. And what we don't realize is they were covered by light. It's, it's like the best I can understand it. In Revelation, it says, in the New Jerusalem, you and I will have linen, like white linen, but it re won't really be white linen. There, there was something about Adam and Eve in the likeness of God. There was actually light. It, they didn't look like you and me exactly. The fall undid all of that. But the minute the fall came, they knew they were naked, they were ashamed. So what did they do? Religion. They stitched something together. In other words, they were covering themselves in a way God never prescribed. So what does God do? He slays an animal and makes skins to cover them. He sets up this idea that he'll provide for them what they've lost. He also reminds them what he said in the beginning, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. Sin always produces death. James tells us that. Sin starts small. You think you're getting away with something. Somebody or something dies in the end. Not because God's punishing you. That's not karma. God is telling you abhor sin because this is where it always leads. You know, that first drink, if it goes its way, it could lead to addiction. The first anything, any boundary we cross can bind us at some time. And so God shows the way. Now, this amazes me because Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And I don't know what dinner was like, but uh, they must have heard stories about Eden, paradise. Can you imagine sitting around this table? We walked with God. There were no altars and temples. They walked with God in the evening breezes. Now, they got to have fun, right? Adam's naming all the animals and I don't know what paradise looked like. I just heard somebody say that there were, they just discovered fossils of 50-foot asparagus ferns. Can you imagine that? Adam's out grilling this 50-foot asparagus, like life is good. And, and then he walks with God. I don't even know what that means. And you sit around the dinner table, and they're just telling their kids about this. And you would think, oh my gosh, it would take religion centuries to come along. It would take centuries to ruin this relationship. And it took one generation. Because when it was time for the offering, you know the story, Cain brings the fruit of the ground, he's a farmer, Abel brings his sheep, he's a shepherd. God accepts Abel's but not Cain's offering. And you stand back and you say, is there something wrong with God? Like, look, tithing is the first fruit, so whether, whether you grow crops or, you know, I do this, we're, if we're all giving God the first fruits, isn't that what God requires? And what we don't realize here is, I'm sure Adam communicated, I'm sure Eve communicated this idea that what God required was a sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. It doesn't say it was more excellent. I might argue Cain brought something that looked more beautiful, may have even cost him more. But see, Abel's was by faith. By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, that those things that are seen were made by things that are invisible. I don't know the science behind it all. I understand it by faith. By faith, Noah obeyed and built an ark to the saving of his household. By faith, he had no idea what was going on. By faith, Abel offered to God something that seemed ridiculous, taking one of his prized flocks, putting it on an altar, it was more excellent than Cain, through which he obtained witness 
that he was righteous. He was in right standing with God based on a sacrifice. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, and though he being dead, it still speaks. Unbelievable. It speaks to you and me. Now, time goes on, and God gives to a delivered people through Moses the Ten Commandments, right? Still revered today, still on the Supreme Court walls. We all know them. Um, every time we read the Ten Commandments, nobody reads on. And they really miss something in Exodus 20. After the giving of the law, the Lord said to Moses, uh, You shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen what I have done from heaven. You shall make nothing in the image of a god of silver or gold, of any of likeness. Now listen to this. An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings, peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, just like Abel, in every place where I bring you. Now watch the restriction here. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. You're not going to fashion it. And you're not going to use your tool on it because you'll profane it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed. So look on the screen. That's a crude image of uh, a place we visit in Israel called Tel Dan. Uh, there's a Canaanite altar there, similar to many altars from 700 B.C. God is certainly saying, look, you're coming into Canaanite territory. You're not going to worship the way they do. However, God said, I do require a sacrifice, and there's an altar. But don't make it like that. Don't have steps. Don't make it out of hewn stone. It's to be crude, nothing fashioned. Why? Because religion is all about human achievement. It's all about man. It's all about our works. It's all about Cain bringing something to God. It's all about Adam stitching together leaves. What God was setting up is that no human effort could be involved in man's redemption. No human effort. No intermediary. No prophet, priest, pastor. Man's redemption would rest squarely on God's power and grace. That's why Abraham was called to offer Isaac, and at the end God said, I'll provide myself an offering. When we get to Genesis chapter 11, we see human achievement codified, organized under a man named Nimrod. Chapter 11 says the whole world had one language and one speech. came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Shinar is Babylon. And they dwelt there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. By the way, they, Iraq has, I think, third, fourth largest oil deposits in the world. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. And God said, Whatever they're trying to do won't be kept from them. The picture you're looking at here is a ziggurat. Now, Nimrod wasn't building skyscrapers. He was building an astrological tower into the heavens to gaze into the heavens. He was a rebel against the Lord. He, he codifies human achievement in that they would look into the stars, the zodiac, to find out their place in this world. Remember Daniel later in Babylon? He rises to prime minister. Who's in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the king? Soothsayers, 
magicians where we get the magi. He told them about the star they would see one day, Chaldeans, all these people in the black arts. Now stay with me just for a minute because uh, Alexander Hyssop has written a book called Two Babylons. Babylonian religion, you'll see it in two weeks, Babylonian religion moved as nations were conquered. So Babylonian religion went to Persia when they were conquered, then to Greece, then to Pergamum, which was one of the chapters in Revelation, one of the churches there, where it said where Satan's seed is, then into Rome, and then swept into Christianity when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the empire. So Nimrod and Semiramis have Tammuz, fertility eggs. You'll see it all in two weeks. The Easter egg, all that comes from Babylon. Nothing's ever changed. Um, the Oscars this year, Freddie Mercury, his story won a lot of, lot of Oscars, right? Uh, Queen, amazing rock band. He was Persian. Listen to the lyrics of his most famous song, Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm just a poor boy and nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family. Spare him life from this monstrosity. Easy come, let him go. You're hearing it in your head, right? Uh, for those of you who think lyrics don't matter, this is what was sell, sold to us, right? Bismila, no, will not let him go. Bismila will not let you go. Bismila will not let you go. Will not let you go. Never let you go. No, 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 mama mia, never let you go. Ready? Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub, the devil in scripture. Bismila was the devil of Zoroastrianism, which started in Babylon and moved to Persia. See, this stuff never goes away. That's why in the final judgment, there's a harlot with a cup of abominations. It's the Babylonian religious system, which has moved man away from God in every form. Now, you can look at some of these forms and say they're, they're extreme, but walk into any bookstore and look at a self-help place and you'll see all the same stuff. The secret, you know, all, all these human achievement books. It's Babylon. We can get where we need to go sans God. And the God who they've laughed at will come and judge them finally. Babylon will be destroyed. When I think of Babylon, I think of you and me, how does this kind of work in our lives? I think of one man, Abraham. And I think of Abraham, not because he's a great man of faith, not because he's the father of us all, not because he's the father of all who believe, not because he's in Hebrews 11. I think of Abraham because of where he came from. Anybody remember? Babylon. God comes to this idol worshiper one day, and this is always the call. Abraham, come out. Leave your father's house, everything you know. Leave Babylon. And then you're going to go somewhere that you know nothing about. See, that's the problem. See, God gets bad press. And some of it's his fault a little bit, right? You know, we got to leave everything we know that's comfortable. And he's not even going to tell us where we're going. And we don't even know how to pronounce his name. And we can't see anything about him. But we're going to be trained to hear his voice. He's going to write his laws in our heart. Abraham, leave. Get out. And then God does something strange. Abraham... Look at the stars. 
Abraham's probably climbed ziggurats his whole life. He's probably looked at the zodiac his whole life. Now God wants him to look at the stars, but not for a zodiac. Abraham, look at the stars. This is going to be your descendants. This is how many people I want to know personally. It's all going to come through you, Abraham. I love in Genesis where it says God created the greater light, the sun, and the lesser light, the moon, except it doesn't name them. The sun's called the greater light. The moon's called the lesser light. You know why? Because when Moses wrote Genesis, they were already deified in Egypt. They were already gods. But my favorite part about that is the verse that says, oh, yeah, by the way, he made the stars too. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, just God made the stars. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, those stars were for times and seasons. Not, they're not zodiac. They were just times and seasons. The heavens declare the glory of God, Abraham, and it has nothing to do with achievement. Abraham, by faith, believed all that God was speaking to him. The writer of Hebrews, in the hall of faith, records it so well. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed. It doesn't say he sacrificed. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of the same promise, for he waited for the city. That's a definite article. There's only one. He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham already knew what Babylon was built on wouldn't last, and it was conquered by the Persians. He was a man of a tent, and an altar, and he was one of the richest men that ever lived. Go back and read Genesis. He had, he had servants. He had property. He had land. It meant nothing to him. He gave Lot the primo land. He could care less. He dwelt in a tent, and he had an altar, and he was looking for a city. He never saw in his day what he was looking for, but he was looking for the city, the same city you and I are looking for. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, a city with foundations, a city of justice, a city of equity, a city of holiness. We spend so much time talking about what should be and how to make things right, and it's never going to happen. We need to try. But until the day where Babylon's destroyed, it's never going to happen. We've been called out like Abraham. God's called us out. By the way, that's what the word church means. It's not a building. Ekklesia is a Greek word that means called out. We are the called out ones. We're an assembly. God is calling us out of Babylon. Now, we live in Babylon, but he's calling us out of Babylon. When I read chapters like this, I ask questions to myself. I'll ask them to you. What are you building? What are you building? The Bible says you're God's building. You're God's field. Brick by brick, God's building something. What are you building? Does it have foundations? You know, I'm discovering that what I'm building What's going to last has to be beyond what I do. Where my office is and what my bank account reads. That's Babylon. Who am I becoming? What is my character? Who are the people I spend time with? These are the things that I'm contemplating in life. It's all going to burn. And what cracks me up is one hour. One hour. It's all it takes. It's taken man all this time for this progress. 
And in one hour, poof, gone. I remember driving the church the day of 9-11, sitting in my office. One hour I'm in a car. One hour later, there's a hole in the World Trade Center, burning. Wow. One hour. What's going to happen one hour after we leave here? I don't know. One hour. But then the Bible says what you and I are building is like gold in the furnace. You know, you put wood, hay, and stubble in, it just burns up. You put gold in, it gets refined at last. Abel's gift still speaking today. Abraham was building. Noah was building. All of these men were building, but the most important thing is they had a relationship with God. It had nothing to do with religion. And, and this is what draws men. I wanted nothing to do with religion until I heard about Jesus. And, and there, there's always this category of people that are tired of religion. That's why they came out to John the Baptist. That's why there's been revivals. That's why Jesus said, whoever thirsts, he wasn't talking about natural thirst, anyone thirst, anyone looking for something beyond this, anyone looking for something greater than this, anyone burdened, anyone Listen, I knew at 10 years old in the church I was in, if God was God, he had to be bigger than what I was in. This couldn't be what it was about. The world's just too big and grand. There had to be something bigger than what we were doing in that building. And there was. And I was introduced to a relationship with God. Religion always has three prongs. You can spot it a mile away. It always has an element of fear. Think of the systems of religion that you know there's always an element of fear and most of that fear is you don't know where you stand. In other words, you're going to face some judgment but man, you're hoping it works out, right? Fear, like you're held over the hot coals of fear. Talk about steps to an altar. I've stood in Rome at the church and I've seen the steps where Martin Luther saw the people climb on their knees until they bled for indulgences. Sparked the Reformation. I've seen those stairs. That's religion. Fear. There's guilt. That's the second prong. You're never good enough. It's never enough. You've got to try harder. And then finally, it's always works. There's always a pile of works that you're stacking up, hoping the good outweighs the bad. You know how much I'm looking forward to this day? The end of religion. My heart is everybody would know God the way I know or the way I know he can be known. I was in a Barnes & Noble years ago uh, looking at books, eavesdropping on a conversation <laughs> through the books on the other side, where a girl had graduated college and was going into a religious institution where she would have no contact with family for a year. She would be hold away in a place, and she was talking to this other girl. My heart was breaking. My heart was breaking that she would think that this was a requirement to know God and how easily she could just enter in to knowing God and hearing his voice. That's one story. I think of people that are keeping special days, and they're doing this with beads, and they're, do, and they're walking across hot coals. I, 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 I just, my heart breaks because I know God's heart breaks. I know the freedom that's on the other side. I know the riches of Christ's glory. And I know in an hour, it's all going to be destroyed. Jesus said there's people building on a good foundation and a bad foundation. They both look the same. The only way you'll know is when the storm comes, and there's a storm coming. 
Job is somebody who lost everything. But the reason he's in the Bible is he had God. He lost everything physically. He's another man that was looking for that city. The history of the world has been altars and temples. And 2,000 years ago, a cross was introduced. You got to choose. Do you want an altar? Where you never know if the gods are angry or not? Do you want a temple where supposedly God only dwells? Or do you want a cross? Do you want a brutal instrument of power that was transformed in the most iconic image the world has ever seen? An image of peace and love and grace. If good people go to heaven and bad people to go to hell, Christ should have never come. But the cross stands at the center of history and reminds us that all who will can come. Come with your burdens, come with your deceit, come with your lies, come with your addictions. All who come can find deliverance at the cross.